You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. More speculation about Triton malware. North Korea amplifies its denials of responsibility for WannaCry. Cryptocurrency markets undergo a strong correction. Blockchain remains a word to conjure with. Citing a potential risk to national security, Lithuania's government bans Kaspersky software. ESET thinks Fancy Bear is growing more cunning and evasive. And how does Siri handle various linguistic challenges? I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, December 22, 2017. The company affected by the attack on industrial control systems, the attack has been called Triton or Trisis, is said to have been in the Middle East, but hasn't generally been named. But now it's said, according to Foreign Policy, to be Saudi Aramco. Foreign Policy sources their story to a report they say they've obtained that was prepared by Area 1 Security. Circumstantial and preliminary attribution continues to point toward Iran. Both the attribution and the name of the target remain speculative. Aramco has denied it was the target of an attack of this kind. The company said, quote, Saudi Aramco corporate and plants networks were not part of any cybersecurity attack or breach, end quote. The Shamoon attack of 2012, generally attributed to Iran, did strike Aramco networks. Triton, of course, is a different matter altogether and affected an industrial control system safety features, which is why Dragos and other security firms have called Triton a game-changer. North Korean denials of responsibility for WannaCry have moved away from the lofty, statesmanlike form quoted yesterday and into more familiar rhetorical terrain. The North Korean Foreign Ministry said, quote, The U.S., a source of all social evils and a state of global cybercrimes, is unreasonably accusing the DPRK without any forensic evidence. This cannot be construed otherwise than an expression of its inveterate repugnance toward the DPRK. Quote. While they can't be troubled to reply to every American grave political provocation, this one can't be tolerated because it's aimed at tarnishing the image of a dignified country, in their words. An article in online magazine Salon more or less agrees with the Supreme Leader's representatives, seeing the Five Ives' attribution of WannaCry to Pyongyang as resembling other bogus war-scare ruses grounded on thin and ambiguous evidence. But most observers think the attribution, while inevitably circumstantial to some degree, will probably hold up. It's been a long time coming, some six months after officials in the United Kingdom reached the same conclusion. 
It's worth noting that the UK had a particular interest in WannaCry, since its National Health Service was caught off guard and heavily affected by the malware. It's also worth noting that this is more than historical interest. WannaCry remains in circulation, still hitting the unprepared and unpatched. The DPRK is also thought to be taking a particular interest in cryptocurrencies. South Korean police unsurprisingly see North Korea as a prime suspect in the UBIT cryptocurrency exchange hack. Ordinary criminals continue their interest in cryptocurrencies too. Here there's a lot of installation of miners going on. In several regions of the world, Facebook Messenger is reported to be used to fish the miners into victim systems. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies crashed hard this morning, losing up to a third of their valuation. It's probably not the end of the speculative bubble, but it's at least a sharp correction. There are more than a hundred cryptocurrencies currently trading, and Gizmodo reports that all but two of the top 100 were down significantly this morning. Coinbase, one of the more important exchanges, showed Bitcoin trading at a bit less than $12,000, down from a high of nearly $20,000. Coinbase itself intermittently suspended trading last night and again today. It appears that high-volume trading, more than the exchange could readily handle, was responsible, not hacking or any decision to halt a speculative tumble. To return to North Korea in this context, TechCrunch comments that Pyongyang's alleged raids on financial institutions, the fears it's aroused with missile and nuclear testing, have amounted to a kind of pump-and-dump scheme for cryptocurrency, and that speculators frightened by threats to conventional financial systems have fled to the altcoin world, where North Korea seems recently to have turned its attention. This is interesting, but reports of such wheels within wheels should always be treated with cautious skepticism, pending further confirmation. But blockchain-fueled speculation will continue. The magazine Computing reports that yesterday the Long Island Ice Tea Corporation, which, as you'd imagine, makes iced tea, announced plans to change its name to Long Blockchain and said that while it would continue to sell beverages, it would also be developing other blockchain-based products and services. Its share price popped from $2.49 to $9.49, then stabilized to just below $7. So hop to it, world, we guess. What are they drinking in Pyongyang these days? There's more bad news for Kaspersky Lab. The Lithuanian government has banned the company's products from Lithuanian infrastructure. A government statement characterized the software as a potential threat to national security. Reuters says the deputy director of Lithuania's state cybersecurity agency told the news service that, quote, information from computers using the software can leak into countries where we don't want it to end up, end quote. Kaspersky disputes this assessment, as it has similar assessments by the U.S. government, and is considering its options. Cybersecurity company ESET has followed up on the threat actor they call Sednit, also known as Strontium, APT28, or Sophocy, and of course our favorite, Fancy Bear. Fancy Bear is generally thought to be Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU. They're still active and still making heavy use of email phishing, but their attack tools are now more nuanced, less obvious, more selective. Fancy had the reputation of being relatively noisy, at least in comparison with its sibling, the FSB's Cozy Bear. That may be changing. ESET is based in Bratislava, Slovakia, albeit with major offices elsewhere, especially San Diego. We mention this because it turns out that Slovak is not one of the languages Apple's Siri AI can handle. 
which seems a shame. After all, it's spoken not only in Bratislava, but in many places in North America as well. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Clifton, New Jersey, Niagara Falls, Ontario, and so on. So give it a shot, Siri. Here's something to ponder. Does or should Siri do idiomatic and rhetorical style as well as basic language? Thus, in answering a California's question, would Siri begin the answer with the word so? As in, question, Siri, should I take Sepulveda or Van Nuys Boulevard? Answer, so, you should take Sepulveda. Or consider a question one might ask in Pyongyang or Sinanju. Siri, where can I find radishes? Answer, our glorious self-reliance has answered the radish question to the discomfiture of the miscreant dotard Trump and his reekers. And how would Siri communicate with the shadow brokers? Question. Siri, we are asking why the people's no-be-buying equation group exploits, even in big, big sale. Answer. Wealthy elites is finding their bitcoins not worth squat. Which reminds me, why haven't we been hearing about the brokers lately? Kind of miss their dialect, if not the brokers themselves. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Chris Poulin. He's a principal and director for Booz Allen's Dark Labs, where they focus on IoT security and machine learning. Chris, welcome back. Um, I saw an announcement recently that um, Waymo has has started their fully self-driving car program. Uh, It's taking place in Arizona. I believe they have have 100 cars and they're geofenced within a 100-square-mile area and you basically have to sign your life away to use them. So there's a lot of, you know, restrictions and caveats and all that sort of thing. But the fact of the matter is those cars are out there and they're on the road. It's true. And in fact, uh, we're both in the Boston area and uh, the seaport has actually um, made it 
made the seaport uh, an area where self-driving cars can actually operate within the Boston area. So it's starting to go. We're starting to see it in many different areas, and I think it's going to. There will be a lot of pilot programs, like you said, geofenced, because I think people are still a little bit uh, wary of of autonomous vehicles. That's not surprising. People are resistant to change. I mean, quite frankly, I have an all-electric vehicle, and I can't tell you how many people just can't wrap their minds about around the fact that there is no place to pump gas into it. Mm. And they don't understand how you can drive it as your primary vehicle because they just don't understand where you get electricity. So, you know, I, part of it is sort of this change thing where I think there's going to be some reluctance for people to um, to embrace autonomy. But once they sort of get used to it in a controlled environment and um, – and they're able to understand that it's not as dangerous as they think it is, there will probably be some adoption um, point where it will go from autonomy being, I think there was a Gartner survey that said 55% of people said they wouldn't even ride in an autonomous vehicle. Hmm. And to the point where, you know, they embrace it. You know, you go have a couple of drinks in the seaport and let, let an autonomous vehicle drive you home instead of uh, calling a Lyft or an Uber or something like that, right? Yeah, I, and I, I've heard historical stories about uh, how people had similar problems with the transition to elevators that had no elevator operators inside. They were afraid of getting in this box by themselves. The doors would close and, you know, they would sure, surely fall to certain death if there weren't a human being operating the elevator. And we seem to have gotten over that. Yeah, I think that's so I, I actually just wrote an article, as a matter of fact, for and I, it's posted on Ian's research. Um, and the point of it is that we need to stop selling fear and uncertainty. Hmm. And it's kind of a problem in our industry, in the cybersecurity industry, a little right. bit, because there are people who it gets attention. But the reality is, if we can stop saying if we can stop putting so much fear and uncertainty about you know how people can hack connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles, which it's a concern, don't get me wrong, but. But that's all we talk about. We don't talk about the benefits. And, you know, there are I don't have the statistics on right off the top of my head. But if we enter into this in a measured way and assess all the risks that we in the cybersecurity space look at the risks of autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles, and we do the best we can to make them safe for people and give them the comfort level by having these pilot programs in different cities, what ends up happening is that we save a ton of money. It's like in hundreds of billions of dollars in um, fuel costs and uh, that's something like a 90, I'm not even going to try to guess, I'm going get, to get it wrong, but there's a huge benefit in safety in terms of the vehicles are going to make better decisions than people do anyway, even if they do make a mistake once. And there's where the fear and certainty and doubt comes in sometimes is that we say, look, a autonomous vehicle made a mistake once. Oh my God, let's never get in one again. Right. Whereas there, there are hundreds of thousands of accidents every year in the United States alone, and people still persist in jumping into their car. And in many cases, they shouldn't be behind the wheel. Um, so, you know, once we start looking at it rationally and we can start talking about all the savings to, you know, cost of uh, fuel and the cost of time it takes to commute, the uh, uh, safety uh, side of the, the equation – I'm hoping that everyone will start to understand how much benefit, and it can actually be so transitional. We could actually get rid of parking garages. So again, I think I'm I'm really glad to see that there that there's a lot of pilots being rolled out, and I'm looking forward to the to the day when people do embrace autonomous vehicles. Chris Poulin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security 
by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. We often focus on technology here at the CyberWire, but of course you can have the best technical solution in the world, but if you don't know how to get the word out through sales and marketing, your chances of success are slim. Our guest today is Kim DeCarlis. She's the Chief Marketing Officer at Gigamon, a network visibility and traffic monitoring technology vendor headquartered in California. Messaging in the security space is definitely a challenge Um, When I moved into the security space about four years ago, the first thing I did was go to RSA. And I was overwhelmed by the number of messages and the similarity of messages by companies that did very different things. And so as a marketer within the security space, I think you really have to be mindful of not the same, you know, buzzword security bingo and tie your security message to business needs and try to rise above the tech terms and really talk about the business need, the outcome that the buyer is trying to avoid in some cases or the outcome that they're trying to have for their enterprise in other cases and really connect more on a human level than on a technology level. Do you think that represents a a maturation of the industry? I mean, I hear people saying that uh, more than ever, um, companies are talking about these things in terms of risk rather than technology. I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, rule number one in marketing is know your audience. And so if you're speaking to a CISO, know what they care about. If you're speaking to somebody who actually works in the security operations center, the SOC, then you're probably going to need to dig down a little bit more deeply into technology speak. But I think it's really incumbent upon us to be mindful of the audience. Um, I think the other thing that we're seeing is security and risk are certainly becoming board level discussions. And that requires another level of thinking and messaging so that board members and members of the C-suite really understand what the technology is about, what the risk terms are about, and what they need to do to put their businesses in the best position to stay away from the constant attacks, or at the very least, to identify and contain attacks as quickly as they possibly can. So it's different language for different buyers, and again, Marketing 101. Yeah, and as you put together your marketing team, how do you strike that balance between, uh, I guess, the necessary uh, technical knowledge, but also balancing that with the skills of, of, uh, of a marketing professional? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. And as I've worked here with the team at Gigamon, it's really been on a per position basis. So there are some areas where it's absolutely required that somebody have a background in security. Those positions are product management, product marketing, certainly. And on the other side of the equation, analyst relations. You know, I need somebody who's credible speaking to the various influencers and analysts out there. So those positions require security background. Other positions like somebody managing the website, somebody doing 
analytics for our marketing spend and our campaigns. Those positions don't need to be quite as steeped in the technology. So you really have to look at it, you know, position by position and group by group. You know, as you walk around the floor of the trade show and you see other people putting their messages out there, are there things that you see that sort of make you shake your head and wonder, you know, gosh, if if only these people did a better job? Are there any common mistakes that you see people making? As I see, you know, messages at trade shows, I think there are a couple of mistakes. Um, One of them is jargon using too many TLAs and using the same, you know, as I said earlier, security buzzwords that everybody's using. Hmm. Um, One of the things I've tried to do is really speak more humanly because in a lot of cases, security starts with people doing things right. And the number of APTs and next generation firewalls and IPSs and WAFs and UEBA tools that you have isn't going to really matter if you can't really put your people in a position to be successful. So I've liked some messages that I've seen that talk about keeping people informed and educated and stopping them from doing natural people things like inserting the USB key that they found you know, on a desk to save a file. Hmm. Who knows where that could have been? But it's really taking the message up to something much more relatable that I think can be a difference maker. You're running a team there at a large company, certainly uh, Gigamon, uh, hundreds of employees and, and uh, a lot of success there. Do you have advice for that person who's just starting off in their basement or their garage, who's trying to figure out how they're going to get the message out? I think the most important thing that any marketer can do is spend time in a customer facing position. I personally started my career in sales. And at the end of the day, what you're trying to do with your marketing messages and with great products such as those that we have here at Gigamon is solve a customer problem. So anybody that really is wondering about how to get a message out needs to spend a lot of time out in market. And I think a great first job is something where you're in customer support, you're in inside sales. I personally started, you know, in an outside sales quota carrying role because at the end of the day, everything you do is about solving a customer need better than somebody else can. And maintaining that foundational focus on the customer is critical. That's Kim DeCarlis. She's the chief marketing officer at Gigamon. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.